Hey DTC Pod, it's time to let your customers enjoy the products they love without the friction of reordering. That's why the world's most innovative brands like Pete's Coffee and Il Maquillage rely on Order Groove subscriptions to build long-lasting customer relationships and recurring revenue. Easy to manage and seamless for shoppers, Order Groove comes with the tools your business needs to become the next big subscription success story. Visit ordergroove.com slash DTCpod today to receive two months off your first contract. Again, that's ordergroove.com slash DTCpod. Also, are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. So you were saying that, and this is, you've made this public information that Swagup, it's at 50, 60 million in revenue, right? What, like, what drove you to be so open in public about Swagup? You know, most people yeah. aren't as open when, when it's at that scale. You know, in the beginning, I was not very big on sharing stuff at all. Like the first two and a half years, it was just like, first of all, we were just too busy to start sharing stuff on Twitter all day, you know? And you have, you have plenty of people that just, tweet, 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 and they don't actually do much of anything, you know? So I didn't want to be one of those people. And also, there was an element of, like, trying to want to keep what we were doing under wraps, you know, for a while because, you know, there's so many competitors in the swag world. You know, there's 30,000 distributors that do basically the same thing. So, you know, when I would go to the industry conferences, too, where, you know, you have to see these things. They're in Las Vegas. It's actually happening right now. I didn't want to go this year, but we have some people there. I used to not put swag up on the credential. I'd put like some random company because I just didn't want people like really looking into our model Mm -hmm. because what we were doing was very different than like the standard company. But then over time when I felt like we had pretty good traction and we were already on like a trajectory to keep growing, the net benefit of just like sharing the story and attracting like-minded people, finding partners, finding employees, finding customers, like it's way outweighed the, you know, potential risk that like some other person's going to see what we're doing. And, you know, first off, you have to say, does the person that see it even care enough to do anything? Like, are they, you know, because most people are like kind of lazy, even if it was a competitor seeing what we're doing, can just by trying to mimic us, could they actually replicate it? Like they're probably actually worse off trying to just constantly follow what we're doing because they don't really understand kind of the logic behind it or how that's just one like chess move and like 10 other chess moves or something. So I'm, you know, I think that it's overblown to like be too scared about like, oh, are they going to see yeah, this yeah. or that? And it's led to so many customers. It's led to so many like meeting other founders, like you know, like you guys and stuff, and just you know, mentor type people. So I, I think the net benefit at a certain scale is super beneficial. But I think in the beginning, like it could become more of a distraction, unless that's going to be like your actual go-to-market strategy, like go on Twitter and find our initial customers or something, you know. I think what's really interesting about that too is the fact that you mentioned that it was at a certain stage that you started to do that, right? And I think there may be a lot of apprehension, especially for super, super early stage companies where you haven't quite ironed out your product market fit and you are like, oh, am I going to be talking about this one day and then we're going to go through all these pivots another day? So I think there's probably two sides here, right? You could do like the build in public where you're like, okay, we're going to build in public, go for we're setting out on X mission and you're going to see through all the crazy pivots along the way or kind of what you were alluding to. It's like, let's, you know, we know what we're doing and now is like a good time. We have like good momentum growth and now just putting 
ourselves out there and helping other people along the way is just going to be, yeah. you know, a net benefit. Yeah. Plus, it also holds you accountable to like an audience. You know, like when you start sharing stuff in public about how you're growing or how you're going to do this or do that then it kind of motivates you more to actually make it happen because you don't want to look stupid in front of a, you know the world where you kind of said we're doing all these things and then all of a sudden they don't hear from you anymore, you know? Yeah. I so. think that accountability aspect is huge, especially like building the company remote and all these things, you know, where we used to like rely on our, you know, my co-founder, for example, is in another state. We don't have each other like right next to each other, pushing, motivating each other. So like having that accountability out there, it's a good step to like, Keep upping the bar for yourself. Yeah. Some people go as far as like actually stating the goals of the company right. for this year yeah. and stuff. And then, you know, track progress along the way. Like the, like the copy.ai guys do stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, like, I think I'm still getting adjusted to the whole goal setting thing. You know, I saw your thread on the OKRs and, and the goal setting. It's like a nasty word, OKR. Like <laughs> some people think it's yeah. like really hated, so yeah. stuffy and Sounds like a WrestleMania like move or something. <laughs> but, you know, how did that, because I saw, you know, you were talking about departments setting specific goals, OKRs, and then you approving them. How did setting those KPIs and OKRs change over time as a company matured in scale? Like, what was it at the very beginning when you first set them up yourself? And how is that different from like now where you essentially, you know, give it a thumbs up? I don't think you can really do all that kind of stuff for the first couple of years, you know, because like in the beginning, you're really just trying to figure out how to build a business, you know, provide customers more value than you ask for them and, you know, in return and, and just keep doing more of what's working, you know. So I think to like start off a company where you're at zero and come up with this master plan and all these OKRs and goals, I think it's just a huge waste of time. You know, you should just spend more of that time talking to customers and figuring out building something that they need enough, you know, because if you don't have product market fit, like what, what's the point of goals? You know, the, the point of goals for us was just, you have a lot of people, there's a lot of demand. How do we prioritize our time on the things that are most important? And, and how do you coordinate? You know, when you have, well, last year we had maybe like seven director above people. Now we have like 22. So if you have all those types of people leading different initiatives, how do you make sure that they know what's important at any given time? How are we measuring the success of the company? How are the things that they're doing going to impact other teams? What are the dependencies? If they say, hey, we want to build X, Y, and Z, but if the engineering team doesn't have the people they need to do that, like there's just so much more coordination as you get bigger. And without having clear goals, it's just really tough. And then also, you want to try to push decision-making as far down as possible. And if people have a lot of transparency about like what matters to the business, how are we judging success, then you can start to trust people to make decisions on a daily basis without you having to kind of guide them. So it was a matter of like, it was more of a reaction to it was getting too hard to manage things without people having that level of clarity mm -hmm. on like what they should be doing. But it's also can be very detrimental, I think, if you get too goal oriented too quick. And also the goals themselves, the, the other trap of like OKRs is like thinking too much about the goal itself and not what actually you have to do to achieve the goal, you know? Because yeah. if you're just so focused on like, we need to grow revenue 50%, like what does that do for you? It doesn't right. tell you anything. I think when we were on deck, like Keith talked about this thing where if the problem with that is that the person is going to strive for that number and you kind of miss the opportunity for a 100x return because you're capping their thinking at a certain number. So it's such a hard balance. Yeah, goals, goals can become like self-fulfilling prophecies. It's like, 
you set a goal, it's like, oh, we hit it. Well, like, what about, you know, to your point, like, what if we could have done three more, or three X more, or four X more, or five X more, if you just thought about the inputs more and, mm-hmm. and really optimize those things. And then at the end of the day, like this, you know, they, there's that book, The Score Takes Care of Itself. I read that book. Yeah, and that's the kind of the, the thing. It's like, if you do the this daily things right, you, know, you don't have to worry about the output, right. you know. And even from that point of view, like I think having goals in mind and in a general sense is really important, right? Like even at the early stage, you want to say, okay, like ballpark, I want to reach X amount of revenue. I want, this is the direction I want to be moving in. But like you're saying, if you're, if you're too specific in your goals, especially at the super early stages before you have that product market fit, you're going to get distracted. And a lot of times those numbers that you're looking for anyway, like you're saying, those are the outputs, not the inputs. So if you're like, I want to build a startup that's doing hundred million in ARR, right? Like, okay, great. But like, that is the output from, like you're saying, listening to your customers, building a great product. And then when you grow your team and you're like, okay, now it's time for me to optimize my operations and like grow the business in a different way than we were doing before. And so I think just being able to know when you want to focus on your goals is, is really key. What was one of your big breakthroughs in like trying to gather inputs? Like, did you ever feel, okay, this is the right way for me to process the inputs? This is the best channel. This is the best avenue. Or, you know, this is, you know, the right department that relays the inputs. Like, was there any big breakthrough there? The big breakthrough is like at three years in, it was like at the start of the pandemic, or maybe it's like two and a half years in at that point. Right before the pandemic started, I had this like kind of exercise of like, we don't know what our revenue is going to be on any given month, you know, because it's not SaaS. It's not like recurring where you just know, hey, we have these contracts. So then this this next month will probably be at this revenue plus some net new, you know, so it's very transactional. It's reoccurring in nature, but it's transactional. So every month we were starting at zero and we're a bootstrap company. So it's like a very kind of slippery predicament to be in where every month you're not sure where you're going to be. So that got me thinking like, what are the drivers of future revenue? Like, what can I look at the signals in the business, the metrics in the business that are going to tell me what revenue is going to be on that next month or the next couple months. So I started to just dive into it and look at things like traffic and leads and goal value in you know, Google AdWords and just looking for all these you know, inputs or levers or signals that would and try to find what the correlation is. So I did a lot of like just statistical modeling. You know, does this lead to that? Is there correlation? You know, R squared, how much of this variable is you know, dependent on this one, all that kind of stuff. And ultimately, I was able to you know, come up with a model for predicting what future revenue would be based on all of those different inputs. And then every month, I would build out the, the model for you know, that next month and the next quarter and stuff. And then I'd track like, what was the variance? Like, what was the actual revenue? What did we end up doing? What is it looking like for the next few months? And, that, and it started to be very accurate. Like in the beginning, it was like plus or minus maybe 20%, you know, which was still really helpful. You know? And then it started to get into like the plus or minus like 5%, 6%, 7%. You know, in the past, we went, you know, not knowing anything to now we're like, oh, we'll do 2.2 million next month. And then that was super helpful with the pandemic because, you know, when the world was kind of melting down and we weren't sure are people going to buy swag or this or that, by like April and May, we saw enough early signals that would say, hey, actually, we're going to have our best month ever in this next month. So we just started to think much more in like a, from a machine standpoint, like, okay, what are all these inputs and what's the outputs going to be? And then that kind of changed my thinking around this stuff in general and trying to find other areas of the business that kind of have the same, the same dynamic. Were those like, so were the levers, 
you know, budgets? Were they operating capital? Like, was it, you know, adding people to the, like, did you get to that point now where, yeah, is it budgets? Is it people added to a department? Marketing yeah, sales? We, we have two different types of modeling. There's like headcount and capacity and physical modeling, like bottoms up. Like, what can we actually do with the throughput and capacity that we actually have as a business? And then the other one is more top down, like, looking at trends, looking at data, looking at statistics, and then you kind of want to bring those two together. So we build out like hiring plans based on ramp schedules and stuff that plan out the future that say, hey, if we're you know increasing marketing spend 5% a month, or if our customer base is going from 4,000 to 5,000, X percent of our customer base orders on a given month, we'll have X amount of orders from our repeat customers this month. We're going to need to have this many AEs and project managers and customer experience people to satisfy that demand to maintain you know, the customer experience. So everything is just so interconnected. You know, you have to make sure that you're doing things in parallel or else like you can go so far on like the demand gen side and then you have no like, you know, actual ability to, you know, handle that. that happen? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then the obvious output of that is NPS drops down. So my question would be, you just mentioned that your business inherently, right? Like swag up, you're able to, companies can come to you, order, like a ton of different swag. You guys customize it, ship it to them, their clients, et cetera. So what really struck me when I was looking at the website and the service was the fact that it felt a lot like I was going to purchase SaaS, which I thought was really cool, right? Like I, I come into this experience and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm running a company. I have different community members, investors, like people who are behind us, customers, et cetera, that I'd love to have some swag. And like I approached the thing and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. It feels like I'm like on... You know, any other service site just picking my plan, this is your custom plan. But like what you did say is that, you know, because it's swag, because it's tangible and physical, you have to think about your capacity, your throughput, et cetera. So what was it like in the early days? Was this always kind of the vision to like reach a like to productize this entire service that you're offering? Or what did what were you thinking like when you were starting this kind of stuff in the early days? Well, first off, I wanted it to feel like a SaaS tool, you know, because if you if you were like Twilio or Plaid or Stripe or any of these interesting software or platform type companies, like the people at those companies who are buying swag, they're going to these websites that feel very 2000s, you know, very 1990s. And I was like, I want them to feel the same buying experience that they would feel buying some piece of software that they're using and, and have a brand and positioning and design that kind of resonates. So design was like super, super important to me from the very beginning because it was like, you know, one, it gives you credibility, you know, it like tells you right away, like, hey, they take pride in what they're doing. It looks really legit. Like they've probably been around for a while and we had to like appear bigger than we were, but also wanted to feel like natural to them. Like, oh, this is, if we're going to buy swag, this would be the type of company we would buy it from, you know? So we've always been thinking about like, how do you productize the experiences as well and make it really, really simple and eliminate decision fatigue? You know, there's that book, The Paradox of Choice. And that was like very, instrumental in kind of my thinking for, you know, swag up because even in the beginning, it was originally called startup swag and we even had tiers. So you went onto a pricing page and there was like, you know, the bootstrap tier, the growth tier and the enterprise tier, like very SaaS like. And based on that, it would show you different quality of types of items, you know? And it was always very curious. Like if you want a hat, okay, we have eight hats to choose from. You want a bottle, you have 10 or 12 bottles to choose from. Not like you go on like a four imprint and there's 13,000 you know, notebooks or something. So we've always been trying to figure out like how can we own the positioning in people's head, make it relevant to them 
and eliminate them from making too many decisions and so that they can move through as fast as possible. So the way that, you know, the whole swag pack idea is like we really wanted to productize that experience and make it really simple, the simplest place to create and distribute swag packs. And, you know, it became like this mousetrap for us where we were able to acquire so many customers because we just do this one thing very specifically well and we take off the on-ramps to doing it. We do the design work for you. We curate the experience. You know, we you know store it. We ship it. We're always looking for those reasons why they might say, hey, we can't do this or we have to use a third party to help here, you know, and just eliminate that so that they can move through as quickly as possible. At what point did that thinking start? Was that like from before you started the business or did you say like, oh, let's start a swag business and see where it goes. And then you started to like learn and adapt that sort of stuff. So like at what stage was was this? From the very beginning, there was always the idea of making it simpler for people. Like it just seemed like a way too challenging process. If you, you know, I remember talking to one of our first customers, Consensus, and there was this woman, Conwall, and she was like, you know, director of VP level, like pretty senior. And she was almost like on the verge of crying, like saying how she spent the last night, she was up till three in the morning trying to find swag vendors and trying to figure out products. And like, if you're starting from zero to one on these types of projects, it's just so overwhelming, you know? So there was, the idea was always initially, like, how do we make this as simple as possible for people to get the outcome that they want? And I don't think most of the swag companies really have been very customer-centric and customer-obsessed and thinking about how do these people actually use the swag? What is their day-to-day life? How can we make this easier for them? So I haven't used the product myself, so I'm not familiar with the experience yet. So for the audience to understand better, like, what is a pack? Well, first off, we didn't set out to be like a swag pack company either. That was more a reaction to one of the first customers that came to us. And we're like, hey, if we can productize this experience for people, we'll grow really quickly because we'll be known for something very specific that no other company really wants to do. But the whole idea of like a swag pack is that, you know, first off, whether it's your new hires or you you have community members or your new customers or partners, you know, building a bond and a connection between you and them is super important for companies now. You know, there's so many more companies that you can work at or buy from and people that you that choose to work at your company or buy from you, they have a deeper sense of connection. And that's what I kind of saw happening. And I saw that if you do swag well, it does a great job of kind of solidifying that connection and kind of like physically embodying it. But, you know, how do you easily get something into those people's hands? And if you're hiring people remote all around the world, like how do you easily get a consistent experience, you know, as well? Like that was one of the issues I saw in the beginning is like you have people that start at a company in the office and they have one experience. And then you have people that start remote and they have one experience. So it's like if you can make the process of creating one of these kits and distributing it really simple, then everybody will have really consistent kind of scalable experience. And, and the packs are really just like custom branded boxes with a few different items in there. But the the big thing is that it's one vendor and one experience. Before, you'd have to go to one vendor to buy the box. You'd get some apparel here. You might get one of these items here. And then maybe you send it all to your office and get like some interns to help you pack it up. Or you might even send it to a 3PL like fulfillment company. So it's just like the idea that we took disparate parts of this process and combined it into one end-to-end experience is what made it really attractive to people. And then, then for us, it's like once you get them in the door, then you expand those relationships. Like, how else can they use swag? How else can they use swag packs? Like, can we do their bulk swag for events and become more of like a swag management platform? So that, that's where the element of like, it's still like SaaS, but we give the SaaS away to get you to buy more merchandise with us, you know? I bet you didn't know that it would probably be such a breakthrough as it was. Like, I think about it, I'm like, you know, it would be cool too if like 
you know, a certain employee got to make the swag pack of that month. Like that just creates such a deeper relationship of, of your team within the company all the way to like the most bottom level of the company. Like that person is choosing the entire swag pack for everyone that will join the company. Or you company. can do like a Slack integration where you shoot out like, hey, here's the swag of the month. Like which one do you want to vote on to yeah. pick or something? What yes. new item should we add to this pack? So yeah. I think when, now that we have like this platform That's and brand so cool. that we've solidified, there's so many way, areas to go with it. But it's, up to this point, it's really been solidifying us as like the go-to swag company that interesting companies and high growth startups kind of go to. Use. Yeah, totally. exactly. Dude, I love that so much because at Trend, we just started doing like, we started doing, so we realized we were selling individual assets of content, but like the brands, especially SMBs and stuff, they don't know what kind of content they need. So we just started creating like, you know, the TikTok kitchen package. And then brands just started buying a bunch of them. Yeah. And I'm, People I'm like, don't know what they want. They you have to tell them what to do. It doesn't have utility. And I'm like, why are brands buying it? And my team, the reps are like, because it just makes it easy for them to not think on what to use the content for. I tell that to like everybody that I meet, like who has a small business or something. Like how can you systematize and productize and like make bundles and just like right. make it so simple. Like my, my uncle was doing like painting for houses and stuff. And I was like, just come up with tiers. You have like the tier one, tier two, tier three. In tier three, we do like the moldings and we do like premium paint. And this oh. tier two is this. One of them's $50 a square foot. One of them's $100 a square foot. One's $150. Just, mm -hmm. And that's it. That's your business. You have three tiers and people pick which one they want mm -hmm. and you quote it out and you're done. Right. Versus every time you go into a house, like grow. quote yeah. this thing, that thing, here, here, here. No, it's yeah. like how many square feet's the house? Which tier do you want? Okay, $50,000. Yeah. You, know, you know, I actually, I joke with my girlfriend a lot that I just love going to CarMax because it's my favorite business. Like the fact that you can go and they quote your car on the spot and they pay you right there. I think I've sold like two cars and to they them. they pay just, like over. Yeah, yeah. And they've like, I got money back when I moved out of Colorado to Miami. I just went to CarMax. Nobody can match their price. They did it in like, 20 minutes, the guy quoted the car. He didn't even drive it. And I mean, the car was in great conditions, but I'm like, they're doing this nationwide. And it's just such a fascinating business model. Carvana is very interesting too. Yeah. They're, the whole like vertical integration of the experience and stuff. And they do the delivery and you just, you know, it's very fair and transparent pricing and stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's very scalable too. There could be a PE firm that just goes and like implements, you know, better models like that around different industries. Yeah, that's what I want to do eventually. It's yeah. just like, I think it's very hard to like get to product market fit, you know, consistently. But I think it's much easier to like take things that are already doing well and make them much bigger, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's much more interesting for me is like, you know, figure out, find businesses that have a lot of upside and then help them actually realize it. Yeah, and, and I think one thing that you pointed out, like the swag market, there was a market for swag, but it was like super fragmented, right? Like the way you had the existing players that were providing like really crappy services. Or if you want, I remember the first time like we did swag, like at Seated, we literally, we wanted to do water bottles and like give out like customers uh, and like our super users water bottles. So we did a whole thing where we ordered directly from a manufacturer and shipped in our first box. And then they're like, oh, you have to get, you know, uh, an agent to sign off at borders. And, and like, we're like, you know, we have a, we have like a tech business to run. Like yeah. this is just one component of it. And so having a service like that obviously makes a ton of sense. You're solving the problem for volume for people like that. The reason we bought all those 
water bottles was like, okay, we're buying thousands of these things. Let's just do it ourselves. And then it was a total pain. It's never worth it. What's that? that? No. It's never worth it, you know? Even with stuff like that, like we handle all the customs documentation, importation. Exactly. Like that's not fun stuff to do or learn. Or like we don't have time for the team to be like on Google being like, oh, let's look up the customs or, oh, and then, and then if you, and then storing the thing. So like half our office space that we were paying for, it was just taken up by water bottles. (laughs) And like, it's just. uh, So you guys are full B2B. Is that right? Or like, for example, like if I want, you know, Blaine and I run this podcast. If we want swag for this podcast, it's just two people. The main thing for us is more just like, you know, the minimums. Because we don't do print on demand. We just have typical, you know, minimums where it can be as low as 12 or 25 units. We, we advertise 50 just because it's kind of a filtering mechanism to make sure we're focusing on, you know, highest quality opportunities. But We've done stuff for people for six, 12 units here and there. It's just a matter of what do we want to do now versus what do we want to do in the future. Our goal in the future is to be you know, a service to everybody. And we'll probably buy like a print-on-demand you know, company and, and integrate those capabilities into our platform. Because even, even a big company like an Amazon might say, hey, we don't want to have inventory. You know, Amazon has these two pizza teams and stuff where there's like lots of small teams there. They might say, hey, we just want like four jackets for people that won some contests or something on our team. You know, we want to be able to enable those use cases as well, but they're more of kind of like, not necessarily lost leaders, but things you just do to, you know, solidify the relationship, you know? Yeah, so that they don't need to use different people for different reasons. Like, we just want to be that end-to-end swag management platform for them versus them kind of farming out, oh, they don't do this part or that part, you know? But I think it's super important also to be able to know at what time that comes, right? Like, because if you were focused on that and focused on fulfilling all these orders for people who are like ordering three hats that say something funny, that's going to obviously distract from, you know, the growth that you're doing and being able to focus and handle your, your key customer segment. Yeah, right my way. philosophy there is like, build a profitable business so that you can invest in engineering to build solutions for all these, you know, edge cases or things that are more manual in nature that you can productize, you yes. know, because if somebody wants three units and they're willing to fully self-serve themselves, yeah, then great. great, like let them do that. But we can't, afford to have like an account rep and stuff like dealing with them figuring out how to design it to then you know do a 45 dollar order for three hats or something you know so it's just a matter of like how did you control that. that like how did you in the early days i mean i guess now you set you obviously set boundaries and, and policies so things for the account management to not get involved in was it a shit show in the beginning when you like scaled your first account well first time in the beginning it's just like do whatever the customer wants you know like just say yes to every single opportunity make money and then eventually if you're lucky enough to be successful then you have the option out to be like oh i'll be picky but when you're just starting like i don't think you can really be super picky because you don't even know what the business is going to be or what part's going to be successful or where, where you're going to like really scale it but then over time yeah, like it started to get to a point where that just do say yes attitude like comes back around to haunt you because that becomes the mentality that people are used to. And they're just like, oh, we just want to do whatever's in the best you know, interest of the customer at all times, which you know, is not, you know, noble in a way. But at the same time, it means you're inherently not providing a good experience to other customers because you're you know, spending too much time on this other stuff. Or it's, you know, we have to hire too many people to, to maintain those levels. So we started to do some things like, you know, the swag up way and, and really articulating to people and documenting, like, what are the things that we do? What are the things that we don't do? You know, if, if we don't do it, is there another solution for them? And just trying to get people to be very disciplined, you know? And as we've brought in new people, it's been a lot easier. But like the legacy people that were here, 
three years ago, they were used to a different way. So it's a little bit harder for them to kind of make the shift. But but yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's a hard transition to make, like say yes, and now we say no to things, you know. But I think if you explain it well to customers, they start to understand that it's in their best interest. So like, you know, that thing that happened to you last week that you didn't like, well, that's the result of, you know, us doing X, Y, and Z, you know, we're going to stop doing that. One of the biggest examples of that was we used to run e-commerce stores for companies. So we'd set up like a Shopify site so that they can put their merchandise on it and sell it to their, you know, employees or their customers. And we'd even like help them set up like a point system so they can give people credits and stuff. It's just not worth the effort. Sometimes you launch these sites and, you know, they're not really, you know, big on promoting them and you spend all this time and and you get like $5,000 in sales. And then they would say, hey, we want to do on-demand on the store. And we're like, well, we don't do on-demand, you know. So we would like proxy do on-demand and like pre-purchase inventory and take a risk and try to manage it. And then if we were out of stock, we'd have to go get more. It was just like a a nightmare. So we're like, all right, we built a Shopify app. If you want to, you know, do an e-commerce store, buy the merchandise from us, integrate our inventory on your shop, and then you guys can run the shop yourself until we're like in a spot where we can take that kind of you know, business on well. But, but we, you know, and that's where kind of raising money potentially comes in. It's like, you know, if there's all these opportunities that are out there sitting there, do you want to wait until you've grown enough and have the capital to, to start building them out? Or do you just want to get ahead of it and, and start building it? So since you mentioned that, is there any intention of raising money? Or, I mean, you've been bootstrapped for how long now? How, when did you start? Yeah, well, we started May 23rd, 2017. So four years, seven, eight months, something like that. Yeah, we've never raised money. We still own 100% of the business. We have, like, very minimal debt, like, just some little lines of credit that we have access to. So, but I'm definitely at a point where I think we're ready to start bringing on capital because it's just too clear the opportunity and how big it is and, you know, the different areas that we want to build out and the team that we need and stuff um, that we, we're just, like, wasting time by, by sitting because there's too many trade-off decisions on a daily basis. It's like, well, this, you know, Anthony wants this person on his team. Well, this person wants that. So we have to say, oh, no, you're not going to get that person right now. We're going to get this person. Or this is revenue generating, so that gets priority. But this is actually going to help us solve the problem at its core or build a solution that makes that unnecessary. But you just physically can't do some of those things. I think your business is in a really interesting space for raising capital. Because like you're saying, I think as an entrepreneur, one of the most important things when you like go to raise capital is say, I know what I would do with this capital and I have like intention to raise and it's because it's going to help me move faster and accomplish things. Not for, like you don't want to be raising around a capital just because that's what you see everyone else doing. And you're like, oh, so-and-so is doing it at this valuation. I may as well do it too, right? Like if you're like, these are opportunities that if we raise capital now, we're going to be able to solve. We're going to be able to solve faster than other people attacking that opportunity. And ultimately it's going to be able to benefit our business. Then that's when things get interesting. And then, but by the same token, like having bootstrapped thus far and being able to build a profitable business, you're putting yourself in a hell of a lot better of a position to go and raise that capital. It also makes you just much more disciplined. Like you have a different culture at the company of like understanding costs and benefits and where to allocate capital that's going to have an actual you know, return versus just the mentality of like, we'll spend away our problems or we'll just spend to figure out where we should spend more and stuff. So it's just a whole different mentality that the whole team has, I think, growing up in that environment. Oh, 100%. And I think what you see a lot of times, especially in earlier stage ventures now with the market being crazy, it's like you have these companies raising tons of capital, like either early signs of product market fit, pre-product market fit, like super early. And then 
they're burning capital. A lot of times you might like you'll see companies basically buying their growth, but like buying growth on top of a business that maybe like it's unclear beneath all the dust is yeah is the are the unit economics there like is this sustainable or are we just going to keep like do we just need to keep raising money at bigger and bigger valuations it's so like hopefully if it gets big enough it'll all work itself out you know totally you know, or, my or biggest we'll, fear with that is like like you know i always think like a nightmare would be to actually like scale it like that with the wrong business model with like your first shot your first try of your first business model is likely not going to be the business model that it's the most optimal for the business. And now you have to go back on all your customers and like change everything up for your unit yeah, economics and if you, to work And if out. you get to a point where you're spending tens of millions a month or even more, it can turn so quickly. You know, if you don't have something there and you don't, you're not the hot company anymore, you, your business model is kind of, you know, shit. Like if investors don't want to keep putting money in and you're spending 10 million a month, like within five months, you can be out of business, you know? So it's just a very uh, risky proposition to hope that you know everybody is assuming that the money's just always going to be there at the end of at the end of it. Like that is just the assumption. People will say like, "Oh, we're we're raising to have you know burn for the next eighteen months. Like, why don't you raise to actually build the business or hit a certain you know goal?" You totally. Know? I mean, that's so funny because like even from our perspective, I think it's really important in the early stage for an early stage company to give itself its time to like learn those principles, right? Like a lot of times if a company starts off with, you know, 20 mil in the bank and they're like, oh, we can hire this person, this person, this person, and you're already off to the races, like, and you're used to spending money. But like you said, you didn't help your company build those principles. The first business that I started with some friends seated in the early days, we were first time entrepreneurs building a restaurant technology. And, you know, we had graduated college and we're like, we're building this great app, et cetera. And investors didn't want to back it. We were able to raise like friends and family capital in the early stages, but that taught us a lot of discipline because we were like, okay, we are, you know, we have, it was like we were running up to the red line every month. Like every dollar meant something. Like when we're running ads to acquire users, we're like, okay, if we're doing this, is this going to be in our best interest? Are we going to retain this customer? Is it worth it? Or like, you know, and really thinking about those really tough questions for a long time. So it gave us a lot of... And then you realize that that is what management is. Like when these companies that have a bunch of money, they start to like formalize things. They're just doing those types of exercises of figuring out, well, what should we actually focus on here? What's actually having the biggest impact? You know, you, you have those embedded within the framework of the company at that point. It's so much And easier. for everyone too, because like even other people when they're operating, it gets them in the mindset of like, okay, money actually means something to business, right? And not just like, oh, I want the best this, I want the best that. Obviously, that stuff's important for speed, for design, for growth, for all this kind of stuff on top of a service that's like working well. And I'm not here saying like talent is important, like building things the right way is important. But I think what you're kind of saying is just having those principles embedded in the company culture to like say, hey, at the end of the day, we're here to build a sustainable business with sustainable unit economics. And then let's put growth on top of that as an accelerator, I think. You also can't buy business success, you know, because if you could, then every one of these you know, hugely VC-backed companies would just be successful. Like all the SoftBank Vision Fund yeah, yeah. companies would have been successful because if all it took was just more capital to buy the, you know, get the best talent, to get the best software, whatever, then that would be an easy model for success, but it's not, it doesn't happen that way. You, and you know? see it happening to massive, massive businesses, like even like, Quibi, for example, like they're like in the entertainment space, like they raised an absolute ton of capital, best investors, like 
And, you know… You'll get Wish too. Wish is falling apart, you know? I wonder what that does to you as like the damage or how it affects your life as a capital allocator if it's your first time running a business and that is your first experience at it and like it doesn't pan out or something and like that was your first experience, you know? That's what you're used to. My previous business was fully bootstrapped all the way to the end of it and… I'm grateful for that because all the things we mentioned, like just completely different mindset of allocating capital. But thinking on it and hearing you guys, I'm like, what if that was like the first experience? Like actually having millions of dollars to deploy and it not working. Like going from that to just having to bootstrap, I feel like would be so much harder than the other way around. Yeah, it's so much easier now to raise money from the start knowing like how to run a business the right way. Yeah. But I think there's also the flip side of the argument though is that Sometimes focusing too much on daily cash can distract you from building the business the right way, building the product the right way, thinking long-term about mm-hmm. decisions. So it, I think it ultimately comes down to the people in the business. Are they the right? Are they making the right decisions? Like, so like the second time around, I might say, hey, let's raise money right from the start because we have the, you know how to do it. But because yeah, there's definitely things I would do differently tomorrow. Mm-hmm with capital than without it, you know, that I think would be long-term beneficial. But I mean, even from like Ramon, your perspective, right? Like you had spent a lot of time bootstrapping, building out businesses, and now you've raised capital, like institutional capital. But now even the way you're thinking about it, and we talk about this all the time and where you're thinking about allocating capital, how you're using it for speed, who you're thinking about bringing on, it seems, it feels very intentional and intelligent about the way you're approaching it as opposed to, you know, have you had you not had that experience and not known like the value of it? I think like, you know. There's different ways to use capital. Like if you're just using it to fill the burn gap in your business, that's not the greatest use of it. But if, you know, one, the obvious one is if you have clear investable opportunities. Like for us, we only spend 1.1% 1.1% of our sales on mar- on marketing spend. Like there's so much upside for us to just, you know, pour fuel on the fire. But also sometimes people use capital as a way to get certain types of people around the business. Like Harry from Pipe will use it to make sure that people that may compete with him in the future, people that might be able to help them, you know, reach the next level are around the business. So like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan like investing in pipe because they're going to help it make sure it's it's successful. So and they're not even using the money that's in their bank really. You know, so it's not always the money is maybe just a byproduct of like you know exchanging a piece of the business to get certain people in or something more strategic. So I think you know you can use it once you have equity that's valuable. It's now like an asset that you can trade for, you know, growing the business. Well, so one thing you just mentioned, okay, you guys spend 1.1% of your budget on marketing. That feels very low compared to like what you would normally see where you're getting blown up by ads from all these services all the time. So just for, as an outsider's view, that must mean you guys are obviously thinking a lot about customer experience. Where's your growth coming from? Is, it, is a lot of it organic? You know, is it coming from existing companies, existing clients? Is it coming from expansion? Like how do you guys think about growth if you're quote-unquote marketing budget is like relatively low. Are you interested in DTC and e-commerce content? Join Trend's exclusive community for everything DTC, the DTCers community. We're talking marketing, product, growth, and more all about DTC. Go to trend.io slash podcast. That's T-R-E-N-D dot io slash podcast and look for the slack community link to claim your invite we hope to see you on there
Well, I think the biggest growth factor is like, do you have a good product experience that people actually enjoy that they want to tell other people about? You know, one of the books I read before starting the company was The Purple Cow from Seth Godin. And the idea was that if you do something different enough and remarkable enough, people will then tell other people. And that's how you actually drive, you know, virality and growth in a business in the world that's so crowded with so many competitors or, you know, vying for people's attention all the time. So I wanted to make sure that what we were doing was distinct and interesting enough that people would tell other people about it. And that was the idea to focus in on like swag packs. It was because if we become the swag pack company, then we specifically hold a piece of you know, mind share in people's head of like, that is what they do. And I know exactly who to go to. And if somebody tells you know, me, hey, how'd you get those swag packs or whatever? You know, oh, go to Swag Up. But then we think about like the actual customer experience. Like how do you make it good enough to where people, you know, will share proactively in forums or share on Twitter or share on LinkedIn. So 70% of our traffic is direct and organic. You know, so, and the majority of that is people actually just going swagup.com right, right in their browser. So that's the most valuable thing you could ever have is just people that know the brand itself and go straight to it. So, you know, that's why we don't need to spend too much on, on marketing. I mean, we, like I said, 1.1%, if you look at last year, was our paid performance marketing spend. So that just gives us so much more capital and profit in the business to reinvest in the actual experience and engineers and product managers, building out like customer support teams and success teams and stuff. So it's just a huge, you know, and if, if you think about the physical nature of the business, if you receive one of our packs from one of our clients, you might, you know, a certain percentage of those people are going to say, hey, where'd you get that? You know, what company got, you know, what company did you go through to get these? We'd like to do it for our company. So there's just, the bigger we get, the more virality there is because more of our products are in people's hands around the world. And then everything is a function of, our growth is really a function of how many customers we have, you know, because 70% of our revenue comes from our repeat customers. So we think of it as like, okay, we want to get as much of our traffic and leads to turn into new customers because new customers turn into our customer base. And then a certain percentage of our customer base is going to order on a given month. So how do we, that's like a whole kind of like growth file. Like how do we optimize that? How do we get as many people going from lead to conversion? How do we get as much percentage of our customers ordering on a, on a regular basis? How do we get them reordering? You know, the time between reorders lower. So you know, we spend a lot, a lot of time on our existing customer base and how we can. You guys operate as a, almost like a marketplace in terms of like the data, the unit economics with, you know, the LTV based on repurchases. Yeah, reminds me of my own business. It seems really cool because, yeah, it's part marketplace, part e-commerce, part service, like not software as a service, but like software on the product side as a service and then the physical product as a service, having that physical product be your kind of flywheel. Like, you know, even when we came to Miami and we're on, in on deck, we had swag packs from Swag Up and we take them with us everywhere. I can guarantee you, know? you a certain percentage of those people in that group have ordered from us, you know, oh, afterwards. Yeah, yeah you know? 100%. We're, we're about to too. So. You don't always have to buy marketing, you know, like you can pay for AdWords, but that's the easiest and most concentrated. Anybody can go buy that, you know? You know, there's proprietary ways to get into audiences that are more interesting. Like the partnership we have with OnDeck working on all their swag, well, we get in the hands and, and minds of all the people in OnDeck. You know, the people, friends of mine that are on Twitter that are influential, like I'll reach out to them and say, hey, like we'd love to work with you guys. Like we'll do a discount or something. Like let's let's get swag into your team's hands. And and they're willing to share that out. You know, so you got to go into communities that can help amplify the message and obviously provide them value and, and do a good job. But you know, you have to be deliberate about 
who you work with, I think, early on to get the message out. So you have data science. Like, how do you compile the model with the data that you're getting? Right now, we have a four-person data engineer and analyst team. Four-person? Yeah. And we're, we're about to bring on like a VP level like leader of that team and probably hire like five or ten more. But they get, you know, we have all these different tools we use in systems. You have Salesforce, you have QuickBooks, you have, you know, the carriers, APIs, like all these different systems that then aggregate that data into um, a business intelligence tool. We use Looker as a visualization tool and, and a modeling tool. So BigQuery is where all the data gets aggregated. Okay. And then BigQuery then pushes the data into Looker. Okay. And Looker is like where we have all these dashboards and analysis and stuff like that. Do you spend a good amount of time on that? In there? Or did you just... Yeah, yeah, for every day. I mean, in the beginning, it was mostly Google Sheets, and I was yeah. just looking at Google Sheets all the time. Right. But now, you know, we have like 50, 60 different dashboards in Looker. So each team has a board. So you have like executive, nice. CX support, finance, marketing, sales. If I go into sales, we have all these different mm-hmm. you know, reports. You can break it down by account exec, you know, how much sales are happening on our dashboard versus more manually. Mm-hmm. You got retention numbers. Yeah. Looker, I've never heard of it because we're building it out right now on Mix Panel, but that's no, that's that's more product. That's more product KPIs, product. right, right, right. I don't have that kind and of and the data from Mix Panel you might even push into. Yeah. Looker. you'd be looking for a, like a Looker, Tableau, Power BI, or something on the BI side of things because all my revenue data is all on spreadsheets and like it just gets lost in Google Drive. Like my whole team, like they know where it is, but. They just keep making more and more, and it's all lost in there. So that would just make it so easy. Well, how long ago did you? So when when did you decide to hire your first data person in, in the company? So his name's Nipu, and he came from Target, and he joined maybe eight months ago, something like that. So just about four years in, just after like three years, eleven months, something like that. And a lot of his job in the beginning was really just cleaning up the data, you know pipelines and sources because if you have data coming from all different you know areas the worst thing you can do is start making decisions off of bad data you know because like I'm all for being data driven but I'm also like very annoying to people about making sure that the data that they have is actually correct at its root and like that they dive into the raw data and check manually like is this right check some assumptions because you know ideally if you if you set up the infrastructure right then you just go with it. Then you start making decisions and you adapt and stuff and you trust it and you can move quick. But I've also seen like horror stories where people think they know what they're talking about or they have data and then it's really saying something totally opposite and they don't know, they don't understand the business or why. And that's why it was really valuable for me to do all of the data modeling myself in spreadsheets before that because I could manually go in there and really understand the data. So now when somebody comes to me with like a looker report, I can usually gut feel, say, like, hey, there's something wrong with that. Like, you got to dig into the data and really look at it before, you know, starting to build strategies and plans from this information. But, you know, the reason we brought him in was just, like, we didn't really have a lot of visibility into the customer journey and, like, the funnel and where things were, you know, not optimized, where the drop-off was and stuff. So he spent his first, like, six months really on the sales and marketing side of things. And now we're getting multiple analysts and engineers so that each team, each functional area has like a data analyst and engineer focused on that area specifically. So the next big area for us is like the warehouse and sourcing operations and all that kind of stuff to 
you know, understand like how long inventory sits on shelves, like how long it takes for orders to go from this stage to this stage and, you know, order delays that go beyond certain points. So some of it is just like reporting and then some of it is like building out like proactive reporting so people can do things about the information. Yeah, and this is this is really close to like my company and OmniPanel and what we do. So obviously, once you're actually pursuing data, so like what you guys are doing, you're bringing on a data data analyst who has like serious high level jobs to do: set up the Looker dashboards, make sure they're interact. Every team's got their KPIs set up, their dashboards, etc. But what we found for a lot of Shopify brands, right, they'll ultimately grow to the size where they'll have their own data analyst who's like doing all this same stuff, taking the Shopify information from the help desk, reviews, the fulfillment information, porting that into a data warehouse, and then engineering the pipelines into a visualization like a looker, a tableau, et cetera. BigQuery. Yeah, BigQuery or anything like that. So what we actually do with OmniPanel for brands is we pull in all that operational data into one knowledge base or work base so that individual contributors, like operators on the marketing team, on the CX team on the ops team, they're able to actually pull their own insights and figure things out on the fly, like in an investigative way. So kind of giving them the tools to run, you know, data level things without needing to say, hey, give me a data engineer and an analyst to be able to pull this stuff yeah, off. They try to like make it like looker self-serve, but I can't go in. Like, it's so frustrating to go in there to try to build your own boards and stuff unless you really get trained in on it. And I think that's where a big opportunity, at least where we see it in e-commerce is, is that a lot of the contributors, it's like they know how to manipulate spreadsheets. They know how to filter. They know how to, like, draw, you know, high-level correlations. But Looker is fantastic for setting up those, like, core KPIs and those dashboards, like, for any department. But when it actually comes to, like, investigative stuff and, like, running your own queries, like you're saying, like, if you don't know how to write SQL or like figure stuff out, it's not a super flexible platform for all the contributors who are using it. So, but anyway, I think that's also fascinating that like, you know, you guys focus on the business for so long growing it. And now you're like really getting into the whole data part, porting all that data and, and so giving great resources. Yeah, because to you that. definitely had like enough a, data two years ago to analyze, you know? Yeah, but it's just like so messy and in so many different right. spots. You know, usually like if you're really in the business, you just feel the data. Like the data is just going to confirm what you already know, and that's great. But when when at this point, and we have 200 people on the team, I don't know everything that's going on in every little area. So to be able to have like dashboards to go in and be able to monitor and be like, hey, like here's opportunities to improve. It's just a total, you know, it's like flying a plane. You just have like these instruments and just do these things. And, and then you start to realize that it's all just one big machine you know it's all just one big like you know people call it the business equation you know there's just like you know optimize here do this do that uh, not to get away from like the people side of it but at the end of the day like the people and everything you do and the decisions you make are really just to tweak these inputs it's so you know? crazy how affected those levers are based on the people and who you hire like it's so wild and can, can the people you hire know what's important like that's one of the things that i found very challenging is like there's plenty of people that can tell you all they need to do. There's only certain people that can tell you the thing they should be doing right now. You know, like, it's very easy to build to-do lists of 20, 30, 40 things. But if you tell somebody, hey, or you ask them, like, what are the two metrics that really matter for you right now? Can they give you, like, a clear answer, you know, and then do something about it to make it better? Like, that's, that's where you truly are, like, a professional at what you do, you know, because you know what matters and you know how to spend your time effectively. 
And I think that's been a hard thing is like finding the people that, that can think that way, you know? So how big is your team right now? It's about 200 all in. About 60 of that is in our warehouse mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And then the other 140 is like corporate staff that's split up. Like, you know, you have like 40 to 50 data, um, not data, um, you know, engineers and product managers and designers and stuff. Then you have the other big group is like the rev org with like sales, customer success, customer experience, uh, BDRs, all that kind of stuff. And then the other big group is just like back office, like HR, talent acquisition, you know, finance, accounting, legal, all that kind of stuff. So, so why don't you walk us through, why don't we do this? I'm running a company, right? I want to buy some swag. What does an engagement with you guys look like? Like, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to swagup.com and then walk me through what some of your product offer, like offerings are and what you'd recommend for me yeah. to do. So I think first off, there's a distinguishing, a distinguish between what we do on our website and how we position it to get people in the door and then what we do with customers like later. Sure. The website's really meant to you know, be simple and get people to the next stage. So you know, what you could do on the site is build a preset pack, like pick from one of like these preset assortments, like 20 different kits that are already kind of selected for you, and then you can make modifications. Or you could do a custom pack builder, which is really the main kind of lead funnel that people go through. And you know, the idea behind that was kind of mimicking building a car, like on a, you know, going to landrover.com and, and like building. Picking your customization. Yeah, pick this, pick that, what yeah. color. You know, that was kind of always in my mind, like what we were doing there. And then the other thing is just like picking bulk items, which is a smaller, you know, usually people don't start by coming to us just because they want like 50 hats. They're usually, there's some project kind of nature to what they, they want to work with us. So let's say you're going in there to build your first custom pack. You go in and you have this pack builder and you have different categories. And it's like, okay, as you go through it, you're in the water bottle category. There's like plus or minus 15 options for each. I think the entire catalog is curated down to like 285 products. And again, like this industry is known for having like way too many choices. So 285 is actually like not a lot at all. And then you go in and okay, you add this one and you see the pack kind of building on the right. Like, okay, you have the box, you have the shirt, you have the bottle. For 100 units, we'll show you it's going to be $102 a pack. You could drop down and see how the pricing scales at different quantities. Uh, you can pick the different colors. And then you go to the next stage, you upload your logos. You say, okay, I'm going to want 100. Here's when I need it by and submit it. And then on the back end, that goes into our system it you know, alerts our design teams that they have a new project they need to work on. And then the customer then gets invited to the dashboard. So they make their account. And then once the design team, probably within plus or minus like six hours, you'll get you know, fully branded mock-ups done for that, for your brand with those products that you picked. Yeah. yeah. We even have a little bit of like lightweight AI that we built. If you go to grab one of our sample packs, that's like another lead channel that we have. Yeah. At the end of it, we'll use your email to then showcase you custom mock-ups of what it's going to look like. So we'll pull your domain, and then we have some APIs that run to look at you know, what branding you have, what colors sure. you have, and then we'll show you like what that could actually look like oh, in, cool. in real time. But you know, when you're picking all these custom items, for now, we you know, have a design team that does all that. Eventually, we'll probably use AI to automate all the mock-up processes. And then you go through like this iterative back and forth, like this yeah. looks good, this doesn't look good. We have a whole like kind of designer view where you can like go product by product and say, change this logo, make it to this color or whatever. And then once you're finally good with it, you can process that order. And then what we have in like the e-commerce experience is while you're working on the actual designs of the product, you can also start thinking about like how you're going to distribute it. Mm-hmm. So you know, let's say it takes you on average seven days to go back and forth to get the designs ready. 
in those seven days, you can start you know, creating shipments ahead of time and building shipping lists. So we have like these you know, bulk CSV flows that you could do. And you, you know, we've had a customer check out with 1,900 shipments already in the checkout flow, yeah. which is really challenging because you know, if you think about a normal e-commerce, you're typically just putting an address yeah. and you ship it to it and it's really simple. Well, for us, there's like a whole project you know, distribution logistics nature to the orders. So it's not, we're having to build out kind of proprietary like flows on the e-commerce experience. And then assuming you created shipments, let's say you bought 100 packages and you only created like 20 shipments, it'll put the other other 80 in storage with us and we'll charge you a a storage fee. And then when production's done, it'll let you know those first 20 will get shipped out, the 80 will go into your inventory, and then customers can kind of use this as like a swag management portal where they go in and create shipments with their products. You can integrate us with, with different stuff. So we have like a Zapier app, we have an API, we have a Salesforce app we just built. We have a Shopify app. So if you want to start distributing out the products in a more systematic kind of automated way, we even have like a rippling app for like an HR platform mm-hmm. and stuff. So we'll build more of those automations to help. So that would be distribute. like I can create like an if, you know, if such and such happens in my business with like a lead or a customer success thing and I want to trigger sending out one of my swag packs that's already like tucked away in storage, you can just trigger it and it'll boom, send it out. Yeah, yeah. So you can use like Zapier to do that with like a HubSpot or something or, you know, even Typeform. If somebody fills out this Typeform information, shoot that information over to us. So there's more that we have to do to keep making the distribution. We think of it as like you have creation and you have distribution. And how do you eliminate the friction in both of those parts of the process? But I think even that process that you just described, and I know we said it a couple times, but I'll say it again, it feels like SaaS, right? Like it feels like me just clicking through a couple things. And it's like, you know, if I'm trying to send something to Ramon or to a client or a friend or an employee or whomever it is, it's just a click away with you guys. And then you guys are handling all that stuff that you don't have to deal with. I don't have to deal with ordering a whole bunch of 100 packages to my office and then sending it out, right? Think about a comp- like an enterprise company, you know, who has... 2,000 new hires every year, and those new hires are all around the world. You know, in the past, if they wanted to like get new hire swag in every one of those people's hands, thinking about like that project from zero to one would be so challenging. Like, what, like, where do you even start? You know, More that, than one person full time. Yeah, I can imagine that yeah. taking three to four months just to get up and running, and then multiple people managing the logistics on an ongoing basis. And then for us, it's like, you know, within two, three, four, five weeks, you can start sending packages globally and never have to touch it. You know, so. It's a $30 billion, close to $30 billion market, just like promotional products and swag. And corporate gifting is like another 200. But I think these markets are way bigger when you remove the friction and, and barrier to entry to like using them. You know, because we end up, you, know, you get a company that wants to use us for X, and then they re- realize there's all these other ways they can start leveraging swag because we've made it more simple and digital. Totally. Like before, you know, a brand maybe wouldn't even think about being like, oh, like, Customer success, let's use this for customer success. Let's use this for community stuff. Let's use this for all these different parts of the business. Because, again, you removed all that friction. The experience is so easy, so now you're just going to do it all the time. Now it becomes a viable option. Yeah, like $30 billion without counting, you know, removing the friction. So then brands can use it for their customers and for their users. You know, we were talking about this where a trend, we were, you know, handing out stickers to every creator and stuff. That's, you know tens of thousands on a, on a company, you know, we have 10 people full time. So the market really expands once you remove that friction. Yeah. And like I said, it's so fragmented. There's 30,000 distributors out there and the biggest company does like 900 million, you know, and there's only like five or six companies that do more than like $400 million. So there's 
all the volume is just sitting in these pockets of random support, you know, distributors right. out there. And we're trying to kind of clean it up and, and become kind of that centralized, you know, aggregating the demand. Yeah, know? and it's a, whole, it's a very holistic experience too. The one question that I did have, because I was like looking through the site, I saw that you also, like the products that you're offering are, they're also like branded products, right? Like they're from big popular retailers that, you know, you, people would be familiar with across the U.S. So what does that look like in terms of like getting partnerships set up and like what type of product offerings are you doing that are already like pre-branded kind of products? The first thing was like one of the philosophies was pick products that people would actually use themselves. You know, like if I wanted, if I was going to get a hat, which hat would I want? You know, like I always use myself as the like, you know, barrier, you know, barometer of like, is this a good product? And then we'll buy them and like hang out and use them and see, see if people like them and stuff. But there's like an 70 30 kind of rule of like 30% of our products are like brand retail names. Yeah. And we try to find in, you know interesting companies that people at like startups are using anyway. Like there's a, a drinkware company called Fellow that makes really cool stuff that, and a lot of times our customers will suggest like brands. They'll be like, hey, like, yeah, I, we, I love these mugs that my wife just bought me. Like, would, would you guys ever offer them or something? And we'll reach out. So I try to strike the balance between having like cool brands that people know that they would want themselves, but then layering in, you know, these generic items that are of higher quality. So most people are just used to like, you buy the notebook and it has no brand and, and that's it. And and there's a lot of opportunity too for this industry to be private labeled. You know, like some of our suppliers, they'll have like the Elevate backpack or something, but it's just their brand. You know, so why why do we want to pay our vendors margin for their private label brand when we can private label ourselves? You know, so we'll we'll always have the cool, fun retail brands, but you make your real money on the non-retail brands. So those are more just like to attract people. You know. Isn't it completely different operations to deal? I mean, is it dealing with a supplier versus dealing with a manufacturer? Is that is that the difference there? The main difference is the cash flow dynamic, uh -huh. you know, because when you work with like all of our suppliers are in the U.S. for the most part, and then they source overseas, bring the items here, and then they have all the print capabilities. So we send them purchase orders, they produce it and send it to us in like seven to ten days. What that means is that they're taking the responsibility for inventorying and all that kind of stuff and product development. And that's why they get their margin. But as we have more and more demand data, we know what products are going to sell. Why are we, it's just a matter of finances. Like we would just get cash up front to lend or something to be able to pay for, for that merchandise up front because it's an extra 20, 30, 40 points of margin. And we can start to build our own brands that have meaning to people, you know? beyond just buying it from our suppliers. So, but yeah, you have to outlay cash now to buy inventory. Like the re one of the big reasons we were able to bootstrap is we have a cash flow dynamic where we collect money up front and then pay suppliers over time. If you start private labeling or you're manufacturing yourself, there's more upfront cash outlay in that case. So I'm just really impressed by the depth that you have of your business. Like, um, you know, I think as we get towards the end here, I guess, you know, bringing it back to where we would have normally started. Like, what did you do before Swag Up? I mean, it seems like you have so much in-depth of kind of this world of swag in just four years. I think you're also, how old again? 26. <laughs> yeah, so like… My birthday's in where, eight where, days. Oh, okay. Um, so where does that depth come from? Well, first off, I was always the weird, like… I don't know if any of you guys were like this, but like when I was at my friend's houses, I was hanging out with the, their parents, you know, mm, yeah. or their older brothers or sisters. Like I was always attracted to, you know, 
older people because I like to learn from them and I can have different conversations. Like I was never the one that was like as much playing video games with like my friends hanging out with them because I just, I was like reading newspapers when I was like five years old, you know? And there's a picture on my, I think Facebook and whatever of, you know, me on the phone outside my house. I'm like four, four years old, like no, my belly's out and I have my little stand where I'm selling stuff to like yeah. my neighbors, you know? There was like yogurts and there was iced tea and there was, and there was other things. And then that would evolve into like shoveling driveways and selling baseball cards. And so I was just always this commercially minded kind of person. Like I love playing. Are your parents? My dad's an entrepreneur and my mom is in finance. I've got the best of both worlds of like the risk taker and my dad and like starting things, but then like understanding like finance at a fundamental level and a little bit more conservative like my mom and I can kind of like toe the line between the two. But yeah, I was just like, I was kind of like primed to like start a business at one point. You know, it's just, you know, I was reading, you know, I started, I bought my first stock when I was 13. I worked at a hedge fund when I was 18 uh, as an intern. So, and I'm just like, uh, my number one passion is to learn. You know, that's the only, the thing I care about most. I, right. I'm always reading something. The reason I'm on Twitter is, is actually less so to like get the Swagger brand and more to just absorb the knowledge of the community that's out there. And kind of, and it's really important to filter your network to make sure you're listening to inter- you know, smart people. But I'm just always observing and, and listening to stuff. And I think if you do that, the compounding effect of that over time, if, if you're like somebody that just loves to learn and you're not somebody that likes to learn, like, in four or five years, you're going to be so far ahead of somebody that doesn't put a lot of time into learning, you know? And I take pride in really being a generalist of understanding so many different types of stuff. Like if you're really interested in data visualization modeling, like I can speak to you about it because I've learned things about it. So I like to be able to go into conversations with people and have a little bit of context about their thing. But, but I think it's really valuable because, the, you know, you talk about how, oh, Swagup feels very SaaS-like the people in this industry don't even really understand SaaS. They wouldn't even be able to bring bridge the gap between those industries and start to take insights from that market into this. But since I kind of have such a broad understanding of so many different things, I can kind of use cross-functional knowledge and bring it into a business that and reinvent kind of how it's done, you know, and rethink how we do things. So I do know a lot about Swag just because the last, you know, four and a half to five years, but I take more pride in just knowing a lot about business in general, you know, and how to apply it. Where'd you go to college? I went to William and Mary in Virginia. Oh. I didn't, I dropped out though after two and a half years. You dropped out, and yeah. is that when you started? Why are you no, working I, on some other stuff? Partners more in like this creator influencer space. I was business partners with an NFL player, mm-hmm. and we were creating fitness training programs. And then he went on to create like a supplement brand and all this other stuff. So I kind of helped him kickstart his post. NFL career and built, we did a lot of content around him. Like we were huge on Snapchat and TikTok wasn't around at the time. What was the, because that's a, that's a pretty bold decision by most people's standards in terms of being like, let me just drop out of college. What was, what? And I didn't even tell my parents either. You didn't? No. What? Uh, I told what, them after. Like how, how did that go down? You were like, were, you just were in college, you were started working on this project, it was gaining traction and then you were like, there's more value here. Than there or well I got like a little hooked into like the finance like lifestyle and world for a little bit like my mom was in finance her boyfriend was a big financial advisor I was very interested in finance and I still am and like there's a lot of value in understanding how and you're like, the guy now that says that you don't need a financial advisor on the <laughs> Wall Street Journal <laughs> yeah I mean yeah, yeah well, I think it's more important for people to know things themselves than just like hope yeah, that yeah, some yeah, yeah. person's gonna like do it for them well yeah you know I was the type of person reading like stock you know 10 Q's and 10k reports and stuff from Apple and like 
I think understanding like DCF modeling is really important for a business, like because you can start to reverse engineer like how is a value a business valued one day and how do we get there, you know? So I was like so like focused on the finance world and I got into William Mary and I got into the finance program early. So I, I kind of put the whole like entrepreneurial side of me on pause. And that school is not entrepreneurial at all. It's very, you know, you get a lot of like senators, kids go there, lawyers, you know, they become consultants, whatever. So I wasn't surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurial people, but my buddy from high school was like, hey, let's start an app, you know, and we weren't even going to the same college, but he's like, I want to build this location-based social network to find kids on campus that are, you know, doing, you know, similar activities that I want to do. And it's kind of like an app that's been started by a lot of kids in college at some point. Yeah, I feel like they still come up. Yeah, every every campus has some kid that wants to do this, you know. But more than anything, that was like the reignition of the entrepreneurial drive. And then that that was like the degradation of my enjoyment of school after that. You know, I never really wanted to go to school that much in general. I just wanted to go into start doing something. And then it got to a point of diminishing returns where you're like, I'm not going to be in finance anymore. I don't really love the school that much. Like, why am I still here? You know, I don't really care about the degree. And then I had this opportunity. I met the NFL player like during winter break on junior year. And we're, you know, we immediately kind of hit it off. We both like working out. It was clear that he had a lot of potential to like scale something off of his, you know, likeness, but he didn't really know what to do, you know, next. And I knew like what we had to do to to make it happen. So it's just a good kind of uh, pairing and the timing worked out. And one other caveat to the story was I actually met Richard Branson like two weeks after meeting the NFL player. And we were talking about entrepreneurship and he was also a a contributing factor to saying to leave school a little bit (laughs) as well. So then I just like, I was supposed to go back to school like January, whatever, like the next semester. So I ended up going back. I drove there, but I only drove there just to sign the papers to say I'm leaving, you know. And then I came back home and and told my parents when I did it. And my dad was like, all right, whatever, you'll figure it out. And my mom was like so pissed. But I think what you just said about like the most important thing is the desire to learn. You go to school to like learn something, right? And if you choose to, you can engage with the material they're giving you in class or you can do something like you did go learn for yourself, get your hands dirty, and learn. I read so many books in my dorm and stuff that had nothing to do with the classes I was in, you know? It was, you know, and you realize that, like, you know, the schools are so on a track of, like, you're going to learn these specific things, but they're either out of date, irrelevant, or not your passion area as much, you know? It's like, why do I need to learn this specific subject that I'm not really... What's wild to me is, like, and we're just talking about this, like, a couple years ago, like, five years ago, but, like, at the rate at which, like, technology is changing and the rate at which schools change curriculum and everything, it just feels like that gap is getting exponentially bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Like it was when I was in college, it was like, it was like, okay, there's these, you know, things going on in like tech. I want to build an app. I want to do all this sort of stuff. They're not teaching anything about it in classes, but like, you know, I have a general interest in learning. And since graduating, I've been obsessed with, like you said, learning, just like learning for myself. But now uh, what, you know, I would worry about is like how big that gap is becoming and that rate is only going to speed up and speed up. And that's why programs like On Deck and stuff are are popping up because it's more contextual time-based knowledge that is relevant for people in in certain moments of their lives. But, you know, I think there's some age-old wisdom that is valuable that you can acquire potentially at school and also just life lessons of 
going out on your own, living, meeting people. Right, but that shouldn't be the only reason why. Yeah, no, it's not. And then know? you have to weigh the cost. It's like right. four years, 200 grand, like probably not <laughs> yeah. worth it. You know? But if I were to go back to school, I always said that I'd study psychology. Mm, I think that, that would have been way more interesting and valuable than you know, business because you can't really teach businesses. Like you said, it's you changing it. too much. You have to do it. But psychology, like those principles of sociology and psychology are kind of embedded and don't change throughout humanity. So I think those are interesting things to yeah. learn. But you can learn those lots. I of think with, with psychology, it's so much consumer behavior. Like you have a unique advantage by really understanding psychology because you understand consumer behavior. So you can be 10 steps ahead. Yep. Yeah, that's why I would go back for that. But nothing else. But I think the, the last thing I'd say to that is like you clearly had a purpose. It wasn't just like I'm quitting school because there's like nothing here. Like you'd been curious about like learning your whole life. You had a real opportunity and you had reached the point where you were making a very clear decision about what you were doing. So I don't think this is about like telling kids in college like, oh, don't like go leave school right now. I think it's more about just saying, hey, the most valuable thing that you can learn in college is the passion to continue doing what you're doing and learn. So in college, you might be learning and studying things that the professor is assigning you. But once you finish school, you should never stop learning and never stop being curious, right? Yeah. I mean, look, I'll wrap it up with that, that that's the reason why we do this. You know, that's the reason why I do it because we serve e-commerce brands. And I thought, well, I've never ran an e-commerce brand. So how am I going to understand the business from my customer's perspective? Well, it will be certainly a distraction if I'm running an e-commerce business to understand the space. So, um, you know, I'm glad we did start this podcast to understand that. And thank you for, for coming on. Um, but yeah, how can people like keep up with you? Keep up with Swagger? Twitter. Always Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. My, it's the number one most used app on my phone for sure. So just just my name, Michael Martucci, but or swagup.com. We, well, we appreciated having you. Love chatting and uh, look to around Miami. Sweet.